Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, I know you've heard from me a bunch already this morning, but if this is your first time, uh, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at City Collective. We're glad that you're here with us. We are in the middle of a series, coming to the end of it actually, around the Sermon on the Mount, titled The Upside Down Kingdom. I'm going to read from us, for us from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. And if you've read it before, you know, uh, brace yourself. Uh, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, here on this Baptism Sunday, we engage with what many consider uh, one of the most unsettling passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Workers of lawlessness uh, feel Shakespearean in its conclusion and harshness, it seems. When reading a, a passage like this, I think we need an incredible amount of honesty, both about the text and about ourselves. And at a baseline, faith is complex. It's the intersection of, of relationships, of current life situations, of personality types, of cultural influences and pressures, all of that coming together. And that's just prayer. Uh, forget the rest of faith. It's complex and it's okay to, to treat it as such. I think it's important to state this early on. I don't think I'm saying anything groundbreaking when, when pointing at this. But when we engage with the words of Jesus, we need to understand that our own hearts carry an immense amount of weight alongside it. Real life application of the words of Jesus is nuanced, it's complex, and it's often challenging. And in many ways, the gospel is simple. Place your trust in Jesus, follow his way, but we all know that's easier said than done. So I think we can say at a baseline, faith is complex. The Bible is complex. And you and I are complex. And maybe some of you feel like you're, you're more complex than others. But we, we've got a lot that we carry into moments or conversations like this. If this is your first Sunday, our hope is that you would find this to be a welcoming place. A, a safe place to consider conversations of faith. Wherever you find yourself. Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, not sure about Jesus, haven't heard about him before, kind of done with him at this point, wherever you find yourself, uh, we hope that you can feel like this is a space to perhaps dive back into the conversation or continue it. We, we look around the world and we desire to find something more. There's so much brokenness that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Brokenness in our, in our families, in our own lives, and, and I'm not trying to just paint a, a dark picture of the world because there is an immense amount of joy alongside it. But sometimes we can just glance through life, go moment to moment, thinking that we're just trying to be a good person. And we believe that's the sufficient response to the brokenness of the world around us. Nothing's wrong with being a good person. 
But the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus are far more compelling than be nice to a person that you know. They're far more compelling than the comfortable and convenient ways that we try to operate in our day-to-day lives. There's a disconnect for ourselves in how we try to sometimes operate and the generosity we might show ourselves versus the way that we look at and we treat others. And in this current cultural moment and the way that technology has made us all so interconnected, there's, there's a disconnect between perception of people and ourselves and the reality that we face. In 2004, one of the most unlikely people in the public sphere ended up in, on the wrong side of the law. Lifestyle guru, businesswoman, beloved for her homemaking and cooking expertise. Yes, we're talking about Martha Stewart. Uh, you can toss that up on the screen. That does not look like a woman who is on the wrong side of the law. Uh, maybe her image in our current moment looks a little bit different. She's hanging out with Snoop Dogg and stuff like that. But at that moment, for her to end up on the wrong side of the law was, was Elmo getting caught as a chain smoker. It was Mario turning out to be of Indian descent. It's like it made no sense. Like it, like it, doesn't, it doesn't connect. It doesn't work. Martha Stewart, known for her cookbooks and home designs, ended up serving time in prison. And I think we can agree that, that initially, maybe you heard the news then, maybe you're hearing it now for the first time, uh, there's a little bit of a disconnect between the image that we perceive versus the reality that we know. And I think that we can agree that in general, this disconnect pervades many of our experiences and relationships. As I mentioned, especially in this modern age of access, of exposure, of interconnectedness, we are inundated with images, videos, words, and stories that shape our perception of people to the point that we think that we know them. And this is very much the case with celebrities, but it's also the case within our social, social circles and within our own groups. If we're being really honest this morning, as we should be in church, We can buy into a pattern of presenting an outward image to protect our known reality with this outward facade that is quite different than what we're experiencing internally. And we do so to the point that we end up believing that ourselves. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus challenges his listeners to not just hear the words that he's saying or assent to good thinking. He's inviting them to action, to response, to living that was countercultural then and is most certainly now. Last week we looked at this idea of false prophets and the fruit that we bear. And it comes through knowing Jesus that we become more adept in the ways that we live a life that looks like Jesus. And that statement that we read last week takes us back to the beginning of the chapter where we should be doers of the word, not just hearers. And this is the the path that Jesus is placing before us. And then we find ourselves in verse 21. And we get this unnerving statement that we could be doing good things in life. Seemingly doing things in the name of God. And the statement is made that he could respond, I did not know you. That there's a difference between 
knowing about God and actually following him. Perception versus reality. Jesus is essentially saying we might, not be, we might be able to fool others, but we can't fool God. Sometimes we're so easily enamored with the fruit that we see around us. There's this great quote from Mark Moore who says that because people are so enamored with the spectacular rather than the spiritual, many are fooled by plastic fruit. By plastic fruit, I mean the imitation of the miraculous. Some miracles are relatively easy to manipulate or fake. They are a poor test of God's approval. Some of these miracle mongers are simply charlatans. Others are self-deluded individuals who replaced obedience to God with wooing and wowing the crowds. The point that Jesus is making to us in the Sermon on the Mount and in this passage in particular is that the heart matters more than the action. It's possible to do the right things for the wrong reasons. And our call as Christians is to put Jesus first, to trust him and to listen to what he says. And then our work and our actions and our lives are flowing out of that and the response Responding to that. So this morning I want to address two of the statements within the passage that we just read. The will of the Father and workers of lawlessness. To help us engage with the general exhortation that he's putting before us. And it's simply this. Jesus wants us to live truthfully. And we're going to look at it through the lens of some contrasting ideas. My, my daughter right now is trying to figure out some words, and it's a lot of fun. She, she, she copies the things that we say, and she's trying to say the things that we're saying to one another, and she hears one of us say something, and she will scream it out. She's like, I know that word. I know that word. One of the things that we're trying to get her to understand is that if she wants to get picked up, she can ask. She can, she can say data. Like she, can, she can say up. Uh, sometimes that she can just scream, and like that's sometimes the way that she communicates, and that's okay as well. But one of the things that I've noticed is that because I've been selling her, like, if you want up, you can say dada, and then say up. Sometimes she'll just, she gets so excited. She just wants, she just wants something. She just wants to get the right thing to happen to her. And so she just starts saying all the different words that she knows. As many words as possible in that moment. If I say the words that everyone cheers for when I say, maybe I'll get the thing that I want in this moment. And so it's not just data, it's not just up, it's out, it's dog, it's, it's all the different words that she might be saying in that moment. And she's saying, if I do the right thing, maybe I'll get the thing that I want. And, and it's simplistic and, and I'm most definitely not questioning the motive of my 16-month-old. Uh, but I think we do much of the same. I've categorized that these are the things that are equated as good. And so if I do enough of these things, maybe then I will get God's attention. Maybe then I will find that God's approval finds me. Maybe then I'll find all the fruit of the Spirit that I so long and desire for. And we so quickly flip to searching for categories of goodness for the ways in which we choose to live. And Jesus is saying in this passage, I don't want that for you. To just do the right thing to get the right thing. It's, it's so easy for us to come to that conclusion when we're pursuing good fruit. 
But here in this passage, in the previous passage, he says, good fruit, good tree, bad fruit, bad tree. And we can read that and really quickly get to this place of, okay, I just need to bear good fruit, and then I'm a good tree. And we can skip some steps in the process. And it's almost as if Jesus is recognizing our natural propensity and our humanity to go down that path. And he says, well, hold on a second. You could be doing a lot of good things, and he categorizes, he names things that I think we would say, hey, they're, they're probably the will of the Father. Prophecy. Casting out demons. Mighty works in his name. It would seem to me that we would put that in the category of good. And Jesus names those things and he says, well, you could do all those things and still arrive at that moment where you'd hear the words, I never knew you. And that's a scary thought. He's saying that there's false teachers previously, but in this moment he's saying that there's false disciples. And there's ways that we, have, we can deceive ourselves in thinking that we know God because of the good things that we do. But in reality, there's no love. There's no relationship. And there's no delight in God. And this is where I want to connect the idea of the will of the Father to boil, to boil the will of the Father down to a set of rules that we abide by is reductionistic of who God is. It's a reductionistic treatment of the vastness, of the grandeur, of the grace, of the beauty of who God is. Because to know the will of God is not to simply follow a rule book, but it's to engage in relationship. Will is defined as a motivation of the heart. And you most certainly don't know someone's heart unless you're actually getting to know them. And the way that we get to know them is through relationship. Let's catch this. There's a difference between simply knowing about God and knowing God. Moving out here, I abandoned many a fandom to fit in with the culture. But the one that I held, it, held on to was my deep support for the Calgary Flames. Through thick and many thin years, I remain a Calgary Flames fan. And so, by default, I know a lot about Jerome McGinley. Probably too much. Uh, I have a lot of random sports knowledge in my brain that does not do a whole lot other than fill my brain. And so, I, I could tell you a lot about Jerome McGinley, that he's the all-time Flames leader in games played, in points, in goals. On the final game for Trevor Linden, this is a shout-out to the Canucks fans in the room, uh, in the final game for Trevor Linden against the Calgary Flames, Jerome McGinley, being the class act, Hall of Famer that he is, took a moment, get, got all the players to go over and shake his hand. I know a lot about Jerome McGinley, but if I'm being honest, I don't know him. We can know a lot about God. But to know God is a different reality. And to think that we know Him when all we do is know something about Him is where the disconnect happens between perception and reality. 
Jesus is saying this is not the intention of God. To simply know something about him isn't going to cut it. And it's not what God wants. He wants to have our lives transformed by a relationship, not a rule book. By a person, not a paradigm. Because when we do so, then our will comes in alignment with God. Our will starts to discover the will of the Father because we're at the heart of the Father. Our hearts come in nearness and closeness to one another. And the reality is that it takes time and it's not perfect perfect and it's going to be hard work and there's a lot that goes into it because we can get lost in the midst of it but it's not perfection that Jesus is moving us towards sure this is a warning absolutely it is but Jesus isn't after a perfect lifestyle don't hear the harshness of Jesus's words as if God is a strict teacher demanding that you get a hundred percent No, God is a ferocious father fighting for his disciples to be in relationship with him and so the, the words that are carrying weight for Jesus is, is the depth of his conviction that your life is not, is not going to go the way that you want it to. The faith that you are pursuing is not going to go down the path that you're looking towards unless you are actually in relationship with the Father. Unless you're actually pursuing a real relationship with God that he wants you to desire with God but also God desires with you. He doesn't want us to lose the plot. And he wants us to remember God wants to be with them. God wants to be with us. God wants to be with you. So a question at a baseline for us to consider this morning. Do you simply know about God or do you know God? This is why we do a whole bunch of empty church things. Tithe money, do your devotion, show up every week, and then we can still miss it because you don't actually know Jesus, you only know about him. Because the way of Jesus is not about making you a good person. It's about knowing God and being known by God. Because here's the thing, motive within actions are, is easily tainted when they're geared towards the approval of another Do you you hear what I'm saying? Your motives are easily fickle when the purpose behind all that we're doing is for another's approval, including God's approval. That's not the story of Christianity. That's not the story of Jesus. That he comes and he, he wants us to know that the kingdom is breaking into the world. I'm already at work. I'm inviting you into a new story. Can you participate in a new kingdom? And I want you to realize that you're seen, that you're loved, that you're accepted, that you're approved, that you're forgiven, and that you're welcomed into my loving arms. And when you discover that, then live your life from there. Then go cast out demons. Then go prophesy. Then go do mighty works in my name. But don't do that before you accept me into your life. To do those things first is empty. Because it ends up being for your benefit and not for his kingdom come. His will be done. There's the contrasting idea of knowing about God and knowing God. And like I said, being a person isn't, uh, being a person, being a good person, isn't the the purpose of, of faith, of following Jesus. 
Not that being a good person is a bad thing. It's just not the ultimate thing. And it's honestly not the honest thing. Because when it becomes our ultimate, I know that I can find that last phrase from Jesus really unsettling. When he just kind of comes out and calls us workers of lawlessness. Like, why the name calling Jesus? Like, it's a, it feels a little personal. We hear workers of lawlessness. And we don't really know what to do with it. Well, the Greek word being used for lawlessness is this word anomia. And the word means transgression or violation of the law. Therefore, sin is transgression of the law. So to sin is to violate the law and those who violate the law sin. So workers of lawlessness means people who break the law or people who sin. So you and I. So he's not trying to call you a name. Let's get that. He's just trying to name the reality that we find ourselves in. That each and every day when we do not have a savior in our lives, that we do not submit ourselves and we surrender our hearts, we are people who even in our good intentions, in our good works, in all the good things that we try to do are falling short. Your good works don't save you, he's saying. Your sin is still there. You need a savior. And our good works, our good intentions are not good enough. And as hard as we might try and as hard as we might move towards it, workers of lawlessness, people who sin, we need to be finding ourselves in a relationship with God so that we can be transformed from the inside out. Jesus, I think in many ways, is just asking you to be honest. And honesty is really the best policy in this scenario. I don't have it together, so I need a savior. And just as honesty has an impact, dishonesty does as well. I think we can often be dishonest with ourselves about where we're at or what we're doing. And this actually has real physical implications about who we are. I think there's a dichotomy between our our false self and our true self that we find within Scripture. Researchers in psychology and neuroscience, they indicate that dishonesty can actually have pretty significant physical consequences, particularly in our stress response and physiological changes. There was a study in 2016 that released, that revealed that increased activity in the amygdala, which is the area of the brain that's associated with emotional processing and stress responses, was heightened dramatically in moments of dishonesty, even minor acts of dishonesty. Another study in 2014 linked dishonest behavior to elevated cortisol levels, which are a stress hormone, as well as elevated cardiovascular levels. I don't have to even tell you all this. You know when you're feeling dishonest that often your heart starts to race. (laughs) Your palms start maybe to get a little sweaty. You don't feel particularly good about things in the moment. All this to say, dishonesty in how we live And who we are does nothing but degrade the image of God that we hold. Jesus is asking us to live truthfully so that we can flourish fully. And he wants our true self. Think of it this way. Each human is totally unique from every person who has or will ever exist. Now think about that for a second. You are wholly different from every other person, whether you've met them or not. No repeats, no copies, no mistakes. And how can this be? It's because everyone is made in the image of God who is infinite. So we each reflect different combinations of his infinite nature. 
The goal of following Jesus is not to become clones of each other, but to become our true selves by becoming like Jesus for the sake of others. The best, the truest gift that you can give to the world around you is a transforming, transformed self. But by becoming who you were created to be, we know is easier said than done. It requires you to know God and to be known by God. It requires us to know God and to also know ourselves. But we know this as well. That crouching around every corner of our well-intentioned desire to present and discover our true self is what the church has called for centuries our false self. This glittering image that we use to hide our brokenness. It's the false self in us that wants to overcompensate, deflect, and distract others from the parts that we would rather them not see. And it's not only the part of us that sins, but it's also the part of us that tries to hide our sin and shame and to cover it. And while false self attempts to produce its own covering, our true self allows God to be its covering. To really know ourselves then, our real true self, requires more than a Christian personality test of which you find your spiritual gifts. It requires self-knowledge without deception, without self-protecting, shiny exteriors. It requires honesty. Let's, let's do a quick exercise. I want you to think to yourself, when are the moments when we often find our false self move to the forefront? We can use an example like a moment of embarrassment. We feel something in that moment and we're so quick to maybe make a joke, deflect, point the finger at someone else. And immediately that embarrassment becomes a moment where we don't want to be present ourselves fully and so we put our false self out completely. How did you respond? How do we overcompensate? How do we try to make ourselves invisible? Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Another area that often our false self can come to the forefront is if we look at our motives. One way to recognize if our false self is, is at work is to reflect on what is actually leading our actions. What is motivating us towards different, different interactions and the way we treat one another and the way we make decisions. And so we need to ask questions of ourselves: How am I actually responding on a day-to-day -day basis? What are the ways in which my heart is motivated? What are the ways in which my life is being formed? Because Jesus wants our true self. He wants us to be honest. Worship team, you can join me at the front. The final thing that I want us to, to take a look at is this idea of duty versus delight. There's something that happens when we have our true self come to the forefront. Honesty births something really beautiful within us. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The Sermon on the Mount is, in many ways, Jesus' teaching on the Ten Commandments. Not only is the teaching provocative, but it's formational for those who have maybe interacted with the Ten Commandments prior. So if we look at the framework of the Ten Commandments, many of the uh, prompts are around the idea of do not. And then Jesus comes and he presents a whole litany of prompts that are around the idea of do something. So there's a progression that takes place. He wants us to move from this place of duty, I'm going to do things because I feel like I have to or I don't want to get in trouble, 
to a place of delight. I know who God is, and I want to actually operate out of that space of that beauty that I see around me. So think of it this way. Uh, perhaps you can, you can look at the words of Jesus where you, instead of just don't murder someone, it's what is taking place in your heart. Instead of uh, do not steal, it's go be generous. Uh, instead of do not covet, be content. There's a progression that takes place that wants us to move from duty to delight. And he takes it a step farther every time. I find that sometimes when I'm operating in that space of I just want to live a life of checking different boxes so that God would accept me or appeal or, or feel like I'm approved by God, it's as if I am a doomsday thinker who has decided I'm going to do the bare minimum so my, so my own self can then get all that I need, pretend like the world doesn't exist, and I'll wait till Jesus returns. Duty doesn't look around you and see people for the image of God that they carry. Delight does. So how do we miss the mark sometimes? Well, we treat faith like a moment or a place instead of a movement or a journey. We ignore self-reflection. We abandon community. We avoid intimacy. And we actually experience fear instead of God's grace and how we go on the day-to-day. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. This is a warning of what happens when we don't approach faith with relationship in mind. Jesus is saying, I don't want you just to to know about God. I want you to know God, to be in relationship. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to live for your false self, but to find your true self by being in relationship. I don't want you to do things from a place of a foundation of duty, but to delight in the Father by being in relationship. It's a hard text. And it's got this title that often says true and false disciples. False disciples are made because we have a false savior. And we're serving ourselves instead of resting in what Christ has done. Some of us do religious activities to try and earn our way into heaven. That's not Christianity. That's not the way of Jesus. We don't share the gospel because we're trying to make God love us. We don't preach Christ because we're trying to somehow coerce people into coming to know him so that we can get approved by God in the process. We're invited each and every day to place our trust in him, to abide in him, to bear good fruit. But Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 15 that bearing good fruit only comes by being in relationship, by abiding in him. Ephesians says, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I want to ask you this morning, we're about to step into a moment of baptism where we can celebrate the decision of those who have made a decision to follow Jesus. This declaration of faith, of new life, of the old being passed away and the new being walked into, not just today, but in every day afterwards. This is a celebration that we get to walk into. So if you're here for the first time, you don't know Jesus. The invitation is maybe you don't feel like you're doing anything that's good. Well, you can start today. Or maybe you're here and you've followed Jesus for a long time and you're thinking to yourself, well, I wonder if I've lost the delight that I need in God. Maybe I know about Him and I don't actually know Him. There is no relationship. You can start today. Are you living truthfully? Are you living truthfully? And here's the beauty. 
when Mia comes and she says every wrong word of how to get picked up, simply because she comes towards me and raises her hands, I'm going to pick her up. How much more does the Father love you? That you might not have your life in order, you might not have your faith in order, you might not have your relationship in order, but all it takes is simply saying, Jesus, I come to you, I trust you, I want to walk your way, and you will find yourself received, accepted, and approved, and forgiven, not because of what you've done, but because it's already been done for you. This is the truth of the gospel. So not living truthfully, you can start today. Don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can start today. Lost in a sense of duty, forgotten what it is to delight, you can start today. And I hope that in the midst of it, we can do it together. And I hope that this morning would be a celebration that would encourage your heart. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.